Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. I stayed out until 1 a.m. last night. What on earth, Matt? Wow. Why? <laughs> we're made from colleges in town. Oh. So we were like a couple of dads trying to act time. like young people, and I feel like garbage. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias with Dara Lynn. And today, playing the role of Ezra Klein, we have Laura McGann, politics and policy editor at Vox.com. I'm actually Is that your playing, title? No, I'm actually playing the role of Laura McGann. No? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> yes. And we are making her Weeds debut after uh, yes. years and years of uh, fearless leadership of our politics and policy <laughs> team. Yes. Later, Dara and I are going to, we're going to talk about some Bing searches, uh, the, most, the most important research on Bing searches possibly ever done. But we wanted to talk about the late John McCain, who passed away this weekend. And I felt sort of personally cycling waves of annoyance at first a press corps that seemed to me to be bending over backwards to overly praise a guy. But then the remarkable display that cashed out yesterday where we saw Donald Trump like drag kicking and screaming into just like the most normal stuff. I don't know how much attention any normal people paid to this, but normally when a sitting senator dies, a proclamation goes out ordering that flags be flown at half-staff until the interment of the body. And Trump just didn't do it. The White House's press office had, like, written up a condolences statement, and he wouldn't issue it. And there was a weird spectacle in the Oval Office where reporters were shouting at him to say, like, what do you think about the legacy of John McCain? And Trump, like, wouldn't say, like... I admired his service to the country and we work together on many issues and also disagreed sometimes and I'm very sorry for his family. He like sat there like with his arms crossed and was – this is not even close to like the worst thing Donald Trump has done. But he's like the craziest I think. Oof. The craziest thing Donald Trump has done. I – don't usually compare Donald Trump to a child. I was taken by your point uh, maybe a year ago about how toddlers are learning – they are learning people and they are growing and Donald Trump is not. But it just was so stark because on Sunday I spent some time with my favorite three-year-old and he did something marginally bad and his dad said, you need to say you're sorry. And the more he was told to say sorry, the more he dug in and he was clamping up and he got red and he was sweating and then he had to sit in time out and then he had to go take his bath and then go back to time. And the more he was told to say I'm sorry, the more he just retrenched into this stubborn thing. And then he got worked up and had no ability to sort of calm himself down. I mean, he's three. And that's what it was like with Donald Trump. He had drawn this line for himself and then he can't back down, right? He can't, he has no ability to negotiate the world in sort of an adult 
way. And so as soon as he just decided, no, I don't want to say something nice about John McCain, he had he just couldn't come back from that. And it was really off-putting to me. This is why we have norms, right? Like, I feel like the big question that this whole saga has raised for me is we know that Donald Trump is particularly dismissive of you can't do that because it's that's not the way it's done. There are cases in which the norms that he is blowing up are these very old school Washington, you know, we all play nice with each other, we're all chummy, the substance of politics isn't going to interfere with our relationships, a thing that, you know, can often diminish the real-life consequences of politics and policy for people. And I think that all of us at this table probably have different assessments of how good it is to break some of those down. But the fact is that he's barreling through them. And the reason that you have things like that is because if people are forced to make their own decisions on a case-by-case basis, it's going to depend on their temperament. And someone like Donald Trump, who never sees any need to show any respect to anybody unless he thinks he can get something out of them, is just going to refuse. If you don't have a norm of, you know, we— say nice things about people who are dead, even if we disagree with them. If you don't have a norm of when a sitting senator dies, whether or not the White House loved that sitting senator, they order the flags to half staff. Like, you take it away. And yeah, some people are going to make a reasoned and informed decision and, you know, have lengthy podcast discussions about whether John McCain's legacy deserves the amount of praise that was poured on him over the weekend. But some people are Donald Trump. Yeah. And you kind of do yeah. need broader but norms to restrain that. I think to your point too, Dara, I, I do agree with norms. I also think I also went through this journey of how I feel about these waves <laughs> of uh, these waves of praise for John McCain in this almost reflexive way. And I actually have come to a different feeling about it more broadly. I'm setting aside the details of any reporter or setting aside the details of the John McCain temper tantrum. It's not surprising to me that in this moment when we do have a president who is rejecting norms and is the kind of president who will say, I refuse to say something nice about a war hero, that it is John McCain who passed away. That I think the emotional response, as much as it is, it is the fact that John McCain is a—he's always been a, a media darling. But in this case, losing John McCain was something bigger in this moment where we have this really sort of nasty person in the White House. Whether or not John McCain lived up to his own rhetoric of bipartisanship and collegiality and whether he actually— fulfilled those things we can talk about, Mm -hmm. but the way he conducted himself made people believe in a version of politics that I think we used to aspire to. Again, whether or not it was real or whether or not America ever did that, he stood there and and, and said we can come together and that we these are battles of ideas and that we want to do the right thing and we can do it together. And that was an aspirational vision of America, one that I think the public was invested in. And that is gone. And McCain is gone, but it's really something bigger about this loss. And and the contrast between losing McCain and Trump's reaction to it, I think, is part of this emotional moment. Yeah, but just to me, part of what was so vexing about Trump's pettiness on this point is that it's not as if Donald Trump and John McCain were like mortal political enemies, you know? Like, 
If Hillary Clinton were to pass away, one would expect a normal president who had defeated her even in a hard-fought election to say something nice and to be respectful of the dead and of someone who was important to many Americans. But at the same time, you would also acknowledge that, like, these two people, like, really were bitter political Mm -hmm. rivals. Yeah. But, like, Donald Trump and John McCain— They had their moments of disagreement. They had their moments of tough words for one another. McCain's dissents from the Trump administration were not meaningless. But at the same time, when Donald Trump talks about Donald Trump's achievements and he brags about himself, He talks about the tax cut bill he passed, and John McCain voted for that. He talks about all the judges who's gotten confirmed, and John McCain voted for all those judges. He talks about the big increase in defense spending. John McCain was the lead author of that big increase in defense spending. And it's not like John McCain, like, sold out and became a Trump bot, but it's like McCain and Trump both converged on a large, you you could draw the Venn diagrams of like stuff John McCain is into, stuff Donald Trump is into, stuff Paul Ryan is into. And those are all somewhat different circles, but they have like a big piece of overlapping territory, which is why they are all influential Republican Party politicians. And like Trump's inability to even recognize like that There's an aspect of life where it's like sometimes you have to pretend to like people who you don't really like. Sometimes you say nice things that you don't really mean. But then there's another thing where it's like, okay, just stop. Like think sincerely. Is there something I do believe that I can say that is nice about this person? And like for Donald Trump and John McCain, like there really should be. Like they agreed on many things. John McCain – voted solid Republican for, like, all kinds of Donald Trump stuff. He served his country with honor. This is, like, the most obvious nice thing you can say about John McCain. And it's, like, Trump's desire to wage this feud, like, after McCain's death when there wasn't even that much to it. It's, like, to me, it's, like, the kind of thing that's really unnerving about the Trump era. It's so odd. It's politically counterproductive, I think, in an obvious way. Like, Trump's team didn't seem to think this was a good idea. Everybody was very uncomfortable all day with this, like, weird situation. And it's not like I want to say, like, well, we're a hop, skip, and a jump from, like, mishandling the flags to global thermonuclear war. But it's like, what is the decision-making process? It's yeah. it's so different from, like, he has these tax ideas I don't agree with to, like, he has these ideas nobody agrees with and yet, like, cannot be compelled to just, like, behave in a yeah. rational way. I mean, I've, I find this fascinating because John McCain is famous for being a stiff-necked, like, very stubborn, very irascible person who often bears grudges against people, you know, for for what he perceives as character flaws on that part, on their part that aren't necessarily related to policy. Like, before John McCain was a thorn in Donald Trump's side, he was a thorn in Barack Obama's side. Before he was a thorn in Barack Obama's side, he was a thorn in George Bush's side. Like, it's— He's a hater. Yeah, yeah. it's—he was, he was a, a certainly strong personality, and that's kind of—that was the root of a lot of the media darlingship, was this idea that he was a maverick, that he was willing to say things, that he was willing to call out people, whether or not they were members of his own party when they disagreed with him. That was seen as a, as a statement of him being principled rather than being, like, a stubborn SOB. So in that regard, it's kind of— 
interesting that McCain is being seen as the kind of norm that has passed away of collegiality when, in fact, it's not that McCain was collegial, but that he understood that people on the opposing side could also be good friends, that, like, he did trust people even where he may not have agreed, you know, that he kept a very close friendship with Lindsey Graham until the day he died, as far as we know. And Lindsey Graham had a very different approach to Donald Trump, uh, that he, you know, actually was willing to work with people who he didn't necessarily trust in the Democratic Party on on various issues that Russ Feingold is going to be a pallbearer at his funeral because they worked together on campaign finance reform and apparently were like super close, you know, after that. It's those kinds of things that Donald Trump doesn't appear to have, not because Donald Trump is often stiff-necked and stubborn, but because Donald Trump doesn't give people credit for when they do yeah. show respect to him. But the people who you would think would be holding up the norm of what made John McCain great was that he understood that, like, you should respect other participants as people and that he had these close friendships, like, are his fellow Republican senators. And, yeah, it was really awkward during the kind of heat of Flaggate yesterday, but there were also some really weird statements from Republican senators that indicated that they were much less interested with upholding John McCain's legacy than they were not pissing off Donald Trump about hmm. the thing. Like, Jim Inhofe said something about how, like, well, you know, McCain upset the president. Like, it was this weird victim blaming. And even huh. Lindsey Graham, after the flag was finally brought down again, he's like, oh, it's over. It's done. He said nice things. He got applause. It's done. We're good now. I would have expected that even though in a lot of other regards, Senate Republicans have been unwilling to upset the president about things that they have previously professed yeah. to believe, that at very least yeah. they would be motivated by personal loyalty for John McCain. And I haven't seen them being mm. willing to stick their necks out. I mean, that's the ongoing question of what about the Republican Party on Capitol Hill when Donald Trump does any manner of things or says any manner of things. And to Matt's point about the sort of lack of reason in his behavior, I do get stuck in these moments of, am I making too much out of a small moment that he's, you know, okay, he threw a tantrum. He doesn't personally like Don McCain. And that's the end of it. If Donald Trump has a problem saying nice things about people he doesn't like. But it was so unreasonable. And even when everyone is telling him around him, that, hey, maybe you need to rethink this, he refused, it is scary. You know, there's going to be other moments in his presidency where he has to make decisions and there's going to be somebody involved he doesn't like and he needs to make the decision that is right for the country. And if it's someone like John McCain passing away, he was a beloved figure by the American public and his job as president is partly that, to say to the American public, you know, this person passed and and I want to recognize his service. And it's as much about the public as it is about John McCain. But he does not see that. He sees this as what do I want to do? And this is about me. How does that translate when we're actually looking at a real crisis, which luckily we haven't had too many huge crises, I'd say arguably, besides like horrific natural disasters. We haven't seen it. Yeah. I mean, this gets into the kind of other angle along which Donald Trump is gleefully stomping over well-established norms for better or worse, which is that the root of American respect and love for John McCain is the fact that he was a prisoner of war in, you know, the Hanoi Hilton for years and that from the time he was 
in there to got out of there to his career in politics, you know, the fact that he had withstood torture in defense of America and that he hadn't cracked and that he had refused to get political favoritism because of his father's career to get out of there earlier because of his solidarity with his fellow POWs, that's the sort of thing that Americans can get behind in an apolitical sense because there is this idea that we respect the troops, right? That like whether or not you agree with particular political misadventures, in the post-Vietnam era, it's assumed that you express opposition to the war by targeting politicians, not by targeting soldiers. And that, like, in fact, respecting soldiers is supposed to be this very patriotic, apolitical American thing. And Donald Trump doesn't really, as much as the Republican Party of the 21st century has been defined by that kind of support the troops, like taking it to excess, always stand up for the anthem because if you don't stand up for the anthem, you're disrespecting the troops kind of thing. Donald Trump has always seemed a little bit less eager to highlight soldiers as heroes than to highlight, say, police officers as heroes. Like, Donald Trump has a repeated thing where he'll go in front of military audiences and give political stump speeches. And a lot of military observers go, wow, this is an extremely awkward thing to do for active duty troops who are not supposed to be in this position and who probably feel really not comfortable right now. He doesn't kind of have that willingness to. And, you know, going back to his statement about John McCain in 2015, I like people who weren't captured. Like, he doesn't have the default to genuflecting before the troops that a lot of Americans and a lot of Republicans have. And I do kind of wonder, certainly a lot of people who disagree with John McCain's policies, especially foreign policy, do tend to believe that the kind of default respect for troops because of their their willingness to serve does lead us to a place of being more interventionist in foreign policy. Donald Trump clearly doesn't think that it's any problem at all to not respect Don McCain for what he suffered as a POW. But I think, you know, Laura keyed on this point, but like this coming weekend, right, we're going to have funeral orations from George W. Bush and from Barack Obama. And I don't think either of those men genuinely in their hearts like or admire John McCain as much as they are going to say that they liked and admired John McCain. I remember the 2000 campaign. I remember the 2008 campaign. Those were tough campaigns. Those teams, they really didn't like each other. Everybody who has run against John McCain has at some point decided that this guy is on some level a fraud who is playing the media. But as ex-presidents, George W. Bush and Barack Obama, continue to do the job of a high-ranking public official in the United States. And like part of us being a country in which we have democratic politics and contested elections and legislative battles, but we also have a peaceful transfer of power and blah, 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 blah. Like this is just like one of the rituals of the American state. And like Jimmy Carter gave a eulogy for Gerald Ford when Gerald Ford passed away. He beat him in an election, right? Like the theme of Jimmy Carter's election campaign in 1976 was that Gerald Ford was part of a criminal conspiracy, (laughs) you know? But like it was decades ago. One of them was dead. The other one was retired. And, like, it's just – like, it is part of the job. Like, it's it's work, right? Like, we, we all have jobs. We're all familiar with what that is. It just – to do a job means you don't just do what you feel like all the time. Yes. And you sort of get it because, like, Trump never had a job. Right. I guess in the sense that normal Trump's people do. Trump's job was to be Donald Trump. Right. And he doesn't do presidenting in like yeah. anything resembling 
a way that, that indicates that like there are obligations that he might like come home and say to Melania like oh, tough day at work like I had to kiss John McCain's ass all day but like sometimes you just do you know and like that's yeah the, he, and again, like, he does, he's not a podcaster he's the fucking president I guess I just I agree with that but I guess I just zoom out to say I, and I like the point that he never had a job before which is there are a lot of things you go through in your job because you have to do the job I, I have to fill out my expense report even though I don't really want to but I, I do it because it's part of it and anyway um, there are forms that must be filled out and I do them but I, I actually think we've also had a lot of conversations during the Trump administration of do words matter yeah. and mm-hmm. I have always been a person who stands by yes words matter um, we've had our back and forth moments about this all three of us and I think it does matter uh, that we have a president stand there and say nice things about a fellow public servant in these moments because our system rests on it, that we just have to do it because it's not just about the person. It's about the public and the public's belief in the system and the public's belief in how things work. And it's not just it's not just about saying nice things about the particular person. It's a symbol that at the end of the day, we do believe in a peaceful transfer of power. We have this system. And and that's what it's about when you see George W. Bush and Barack Obama speaking. And you're, we're going to see, I'm sure, Michelle Obama will be sitting next to Laura Bush. And it's about, here's a bunch of people who might personally hate each other, but that's not the point. That there's a bigger point here. But all Donald Trump sees is, I did not like this person. And he doesn't see the broader point of the office of the presidency and his role in representing it. All right, let's 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 take a break and then because we and are podcasters, then, we do get yes. to evaluate John McCain. And on then let's else. let's let's try to delve into yep. the yeah. actual career of John McCain. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. 
you can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I have been dying for days to ask you, Dara. Yes, like, what, like, like, what was the deal with John McCain and immigration? Like, this is one of these things where, like, I, like most people, I am aware that, like, when there was a push for bipartisan immigration reform, McCain was, like, one of the headline names for yeah. that on the Republican side. But there were, like, many, many moving pieces in that legislation. And, like, I don't— Several like, legislations. Right. How yeah, did that and, even and, like, shake and, out? And, like, what yeah, ha- yeah. Was, was he legislatoring or was he, <laughs> or was he just, like— a face for the bill or like what was his like his angle like like what was he all about and also tell us what happened in the end like the next the next <laughs> chapter in the saga anyway tell so us like everything there, there Dara. Are several tell chapters us. like the thing you kind of have to remember john mccain was a champion of a very particular thing called comprehensive immigration reform indeed uh, which kind of took shape in the early to mid 2000s versions of it went in front of the senate in 2006 2007 and 2013 In 2013, it ended up passing the Senate by a very large margin and then died in the House, uh, largely because Marco Rubio, who had been one of the people shepherding it through the Senate, made it pretty clear that he wasn't willing to stick his neck out any further than he already had. But it's really interesting if you think about it that legislation that was not identical but was built around the same basic framework of we're going to, you know, have a path to citizenship for unauthorized immigrants who are currently here, we're going to increase border security to prevent future entries, and we're going to revamp legal immigration, particularly for greater flexibility in bringing low-skilled workers to the United States. That, like, those three things are the basis of legislation that gets introduced in 2006 and 2007 unsuccessfully. And then, you know, that continues to 2013. It's like, it's a weirdly almost overbaked thing where the elite consensus on it was so strong and there was so little ability to kind of substantively change the legislation to get people on board, which especially in the Senate, like there's a lot of performative, oh, you've given me my thing. You've agreed to address my concern. I can now get on board with it. They were able to do that a little bit with border security in the 2013 version, but like The cake was pretty much baked. And I think it's really important to understand that when we're talking about McCain's role, because McCain wasn't – there wasn't like a particular piece of this that John McCain thought was particularly important. He thought it was important to have border security. He thought it was important to like legalize people who were already here. He mocked Mitt Romney pretty mercilessly after Romney's loss in 2012. He was like, you can't get 11 million people to self-deport. That was a really dumb thing to say. That helped cost us the election. And he thought that it was important, you know. Like, I also remember him from 2007, like berating someone at a town hall in New Hampshire for like the idea that he wanted a legislature picking job that immigrants were taking for. No, yes. but I mean, it was, right, a, right, it, no. it, it was a memorable straight talk moment. It was actually the kind of thing about immigration that I think many people who favor immigration reform, like many like white people who favor immigration reform think, but wouldn't say. But, you know, it was something like, like, you go do it. Like, right. go sign up for a full season in 100 degree weather to pick lettuce in Arizona and then come complain to me about, you know, people taking your job. And like, yeah, it was like obvious, right? Like nobody nobody from New Hampshire wanted to go move to Arizona to be a lettuce picker. 
Arizona is particularly interesting because, like, even before John McCain was engaged on this, Jeff Flake in the House was pushing this exact same, look, let's be realistic here. There's only one way we're going to solve this problem, and it involves allowing people to come here and do the jobs. Asterisk, when Flake was in the Senate in 2013, apparently, and there's a really good Ryan Lee's a New Yorker piece about the kind of 2013 bill that I'll put in show notes, but— Lisa says that McCain was really pissed off that he didn't want to share the spotlight with another Arizonan. But, like, because Jeff Flake had been engaged on this this issue for, like, a decade, he needed to get on board. So is that with this John McCain is pissed that Flake is stealing his thunder? Was that a moment of John McCain media BS of I want a lot of headlines about how I'm a leader, but I'm not really? Or was he – did he actually do shit with – Immigration. That's yeah. that's what I want to know. Is, yeah, was I mean, he I really? Think, I, I feel like he's not. He was not Ted Kennedy, right? He was not the person who was figuring out what is the broad framework that is going to get the most people on board. What my understanding is is that he was the person in the room, kind of saying, "Look, you can engage in the kind of political BS all you want, but we all understand that." There are not other good solutions and that this is a good solution, at least, you know, in, in the 2013 iteration that, like, he's the person, you know, he was also super upset with Marco Rubio because he intuited and turns out correctly that Rubio wasn't willing to put his neck on the line. McCain was very much in like, look, we are going to get as many people as possible to get on board with this. We yeah. are going to tell them that it's the right thing to do. We are going to kind of shame them into understanding that this is the correct Correct way to go forward. So it's it's basically John McCain playing the role in private that he played in public, right? This very like, okay. I am uncompromising in my principles. I believe this is the right thing to do. It is not that I'm going to like be Barack Obama and have this professorial exchange with you and rationally persuade you to my point of view. It is that I am going to be extremely forceful and you are going to realize that I'm right and come along with me. How many Republicans in the end uh, in 20, yeah, in 2013? 2013, how many Republicans came along with I shouldn't just say came along yeah. with McCain, but we're also voted for it. Was it a handful? No, it was. I mean, it was a pretty strong majority. They got 68 votes in the Senate. Ah, all right. Um, and a lot of that was because Bob Corker and John Hoven came up with a package that was going to, like, expand border security a lot so that they could do the thing where they said they got yeah. something out of it. And this kind of goes back to the one moment of John McCain and immigration that complicates this idea that John McCain was this uncompromising advocate for comprehensive immigration reform, which was his 2010 re-election campaign for the Senate, where he famously like did an ad in the primary because he was getting a, a challenge from this very hawkish talk radio host in Arizona. And he did an ad you know, with a sheriff walking along the border and said, build the dang fence, uh, which at the time, you know, before there was talk of a wall was just seen as this very hortatory, like, a man who had not three years earlier been berating people in New Hampshire town halls about you wouldn't pick lettuce was now trying to engage in that Mm. exact same symbolism. And, like, it was not great timing because in 2010, there were people who were trying to do that in the early years of the Obama administration who were trying to pass immigration reform and, like, not having McCain kind of made it very difficult for that to go forward. I mean, forward. McCain, McCain joined other Republicans in filibustering the DREAM Act in 2010. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He, he, although even even some of the Republicans who had been kind of supportive of comprehensive immigration reform earlier that year also did that because right. Senator Ego thing. But 
a lot of the reason that Donald Trump doesn't like John McCain is that Donald Trump understands correctly that John McCain represents a wing of the Republican Party that Donald Trump had to defeat to become president. Uh, and I Can think that's we rewind the Dream Act? Wait, so did John McCain right, like so legit after, question about John McCain the Dream Act? Like, was he? A, I mean, all the Republicans yeah, did. Yeah, exactly. Like, but, what but, happened here was that Harry Reid promised to vote on the Dream Act right. to win his own re-election campaign in 2010, okay. and then brought it up in the lame duck session. And right, so right. Republicans put up a lot of procedural objections about we haven't had enough hearings, right, we haven't been right. consulted. Essentially, you know, withheld their votes from something that many of them did not have substantive objections to right, right. I'm because back in they time. were mad I'm at Harry hearing, We need that music of like, like I remember yeah. in 2010. But, but, okay. I, but I think this is important right. because, be, is, because is, to yeah. me, when, when I think about John McCain, like big, big, big picture, right? And like big themes and, you know, country first and, and all that kind of stuff. The place to me where the rubber hit the road was in 2009 and 2010 when I think a lot of people were aware that because yes. Barack Obama was president, because he had won such a big victory, uh, because Democrats had 59 or 60 senators for much of that time, there was the chance of big breakthroughs happening. Right. Yes. And there was a hope on Democrats' side that like success would lead to success and that there would be positive momentum. And there was a fear on the Republican side that success would lead to success and Democrats would have positive momentum. And there was a strategy that Mitch McConnell outlined. And like the strategy was to, at every possible opportunity, think of reasons to say no. Right. Like sometimes in the legislative dynamic, you are trying to think of reasons to say yes. Somebody says, I want an $800 billion stimulus. You say to them, OK, that's a big ask, but I can help you out with that if you will, you know, build a golden statue in my district or, or whatever. And McConnell's whole project was to make sure that Republicans did not get into that mode, yes. that they instead went into find reasons to say no mode. And he was very successful at that. And John McCain was part of that strategy, right? Like with the DREAM Act being a clear example. Now, he had his reasons. You know, if you ask Republicans like why – they'll give you this whole story about Harry Reid and cynicism, blah, blah, blah. And like fair enough. But it was a case of Republicans were getting to know even on things that they had been for in the past. So like John McCain had co-sponsored a climate change bill with Joe Lieberman back in 2006. But when Barack Obama was president, suddenly he had no interest in the subject, right? Like there were not going to be any wins for, for Obama. Right. And that was because – in part because McCain was a loyal Republican, in part because McCain had been the guy who Obama had beaten and he felt peak about it. It's not like the most outrageous thing you've ever heard of a politician doing, like not wanting to help right. out but the, I see the guy who just. But now the media. But this is where we come full circle, and I don't think we fully vet, like fully unpack this. But, but it's just like the laudatory so, coverage of him as the Straight Talk Express and as the man who reached across the aisle. And this, you know, he could have the trajectory of Obama's presidency. I think could have maybe been different it, it was if the, McCain played a different time, role. Yes. It was the time when McCain actually came closest to having the wheel of destiny in his yeah. hands, right? Was there had been this economic crisis. McCain had done this suspending the campaign thing. Yeah. You know, he was he, he was right before the election was like making these gestures of like being John McCain the character. And then after the election, it would have been an extraordinary thing to do. 
right. right? For the guy who just lost the election right. to, like, come in and, like, offer a helping hand to the new administration. And it's not surprising that McCain didn't do it. But, like, that was the chance to actually do something extraordinary, right? Not to co-sponsor climate legislation with Joe Lieberman that was never going to get a floor vote, but to, like, co-sponsor climate legislation with John Kerry that would have been championed by the president of the United States and would have gotten through the Senate. And, like, he didn't do it. Like, a bill passed the House. The president wanted it. And, like, McCain had his primary challenge and, you you know, a million other things. But it was, like, the the moment was there so that— the retrospectives could have said, and he did this, that, and the other thing, and consequently public policy was changed forever, rather than to say, I had all these positive interactions with him in the halls of the Senate office building. And he represented And he represented the spirit, right. The spirit of what, uh, the aspirational vision of America, rather than he did it. In, In the face of losing a primary, in the face of the sort of, I don't want to say humiliation, but there, it takes a certain uh, amount of humility to go to the man who beat you and say, let's work on this. But he didn't. And not even on immigration, which yeah. is, I think, and it was in dreamers. I mean, it just, it's, again, it's not surprising. And I don't think I would necessarily be sitting here with some other senator saying the same thing. But in a moment when it's been so uh, – the conversation in the media around John McCain is this is such a huge loss. A lion of the Senate is gone. It's hard to not want to talk about this. So it's worth contrasting this with 2013, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, I think the story of McCain on immigration is he was motivated not just by a vision of America but by a vision of the Republican Party. And when, especially after Romney's loss in 2012, that realizing his vision of the Republican Party was going to take him going to bat against his own party and was going to take him showing a kind of courage. And, like, you know, he resisted Mitch McConnell's early attempts to, like, get some real hardcore immigration hawks in the pro- in early in the process. Like, McConnell wanted Chuck Grassley in the room. Chuck Grassley had never seen an immigration, you know, a legalization bill that he liked. John McCain said, no, nah, we're not doing that. It's not that he was kind of unwilling to work with Obama. I think it's that he realized too late, right? He was doing this in the second term rather than the first term, that it took the Romney loss for him to apparently realize that he was going to have to wrest control of his party back or at mm-hmm. least to to get his party on board with something that current leadership was going to disagree with them on. And this – like I don't think in general it's fair to fault somebody for coming to a realization – after the moment where they really could have made a difference. Like, I yes, that is unfortunate, but often people need a learning experience and it's a f- matter of fate that someone may not get the same chance again. But what this brings me back to is, did John McCain, having had the realization that the Republican Party wasn't going to do what he ne- thought they needed to do on its own, understand his own role in creating that party. And that gets back to something yeah. you, Laura, I know are, are super, you know, interested in, <laughs> which is the role of Sarah Palin in the McCain uh, legacy. Yeah. Laura at Vox.com. Just send the emails right now. <laughs> Fine. Um, These I, listeners are a lot nicer than readers. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. who, who, Sarah Palin? Yeah. The former governor of Alaska? Yeah. yeah. I spent 
2008, covering uh, Sarah Palin's, well, the end of the 2008 campaign, uh, covering Sarah Palin's vice presidential bid. So I had some thoughts on her, and I have in the uh, intervening eight years. And I think that you can draw a straight line from John McCain tapping Sarah Palin, using his credibility and vouching for her and her stepping on to the Republican National Convention stage and saying that the difference between a a pit bull and a hockey mom is lipstick straight to Donald Trump. That there was this there's this line of a, it was the beginning of a style of politics where the Republican Party, the leaders of the Republican Party, the sort of keepers of the ideology and of truth and standards were going to get behind somebody who was essentially a demagogue because they thought it could keep the base happy, turn out the vote, and actually help them to win. And if that meant for John McCain unleashing a candidate who was a nativist, who uh, made subtle or not so subtle comments about Barack Obama palling around with terrorists on the same day that he's telling a woman in the audience, no, uh, Barack Obama's a good man. His running mate is out there saying the very opposite thing. And he was happy to look away and pretend it wasn't happening because he wanted to win. And it's also, you know, in terms of like like what Tara was saying, right, like visions of the Republican Party. Like I remember being in the in the basement of the Excel Center in St. Paul when when Palin made her debut. debut. And there were all these reporters. You know how like everybody thought Donald Trump was going to lose in 2016? In that moment, when Palin made her debut, everybody thought this was going to be a huge political success, right? And it was the fact that Palin ultimately yeah. flopped that I think led to pessimism about Trump. But like right away, I was like, oh my God. And you know, people were saying it's like, oh, you know, like liberals are going to get on her and then the backlash to yes. that is going to be amazing. And it was the origin there that like we are not going to attempt to formulate a policy agenda that we can credibly say will advance people's interests in a concrete material sense. Instead, what we are going to do is create a like hazy set of media resentments and then just hope we can like surf our policy agenda on the back of that. Right? Without and explicitly, like, you know, a, a hazy set of media resentments that are closely tied to race, but that we can point to without having to say anything that our peers in the political elite will understand is clearly over the line. Exactly. And, and like that is the Donald Trump republicanism, right, is like we're just – like, we're not going to bother. Like, we're not going to, like, get some pencil pushers to, like, work this out and say, like, here's right. a good idea that makes sense. Right. It's just, like, we're going to own the libs, right? Right. And, like, and there's no pushback from the elite arm, I would say, of the Republican Party that that said, like, whoa, no, we actually have to have policies that make sense and work and we do have to make deals and we have to do things as a political party. Instead, it's just it's just hate rhetoric and uh, resentment, like you're saying, and pitting elitism versus everyone else, which shockingly Donald Trump does really well. He's rich. 
He had a he had a uh, a riff recently in a recent campaign rally, and I don't know if he always does this. I hadn't heard it before about the elites don't think he's elite. He said, I have a penthouse on Fifth Avenue. I have tons of money. I have golf courses. I have a plane. And you know what the elites say? I'm not an elite. My money isn't as isn't good enough for them. And on some level, he's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, we're just a bunch of broke people doing a podcast, and probably, yeah, we basically turn our nose up at him because you know we think, oh, he's this and that, and he he brings out the worst in people, and he doesn't have sharp ideas, and all, and he's not reasonable, and so he's able to speak to people who have no money but have the same resentment towards a class of people and school of thought. And and Sarah Palin did that too, that she was arguably, actually, she was a pauper compared to anyone else sure. in the field. However, you know, she had uh, a nice house, no credit card debt, I remember, was a sort of big thing for kind of a middle-class family. She had quite a few children. She had a lake view and a boat and everything. But the thing she was able to do is, ugh, these elites talking down to me with my, you know, she she would make subtle references to she had her son who had disabilities, but she's pro-life. And, and she gave a sense of my simple life is looked down upon by the elites and the media is praising this elitist Barack Obama, who we all know, we really know what he's really about and sort of played to that race baiting that I don't think was fully highlighted by the media in 2008. And even if it was, who knows if that would have done anything anyway, but it, it, it definitely was there. And it was a, it's, I don't think you get to Donald Trump without something in between. And I think we saw Sarah Palin out there and I saw her too. And I thought, oh, wow, I need to get on a plane to Alaska immediately, which is what I did. I wasn't at the convention. I was still in DC and I was able to get there quickly. And I went to, um, the city clerk's office, and I asked for all of the minutes from when she was mayor of Wasilla. And I, I was chatting with the clerk there, and I said to her, oh, sorry, you've probably been swamped. And I'm standing there. No one. There's no one anywhere. It's just me standing there. I said, you must have been swamped. I mean, did you prepare stuff for the John McCain campaign? Can I actually put in a public record request for whatever they requested? And she looked at me and said, no, no one's been here. No one's, and, you know, she's looking around like, no, no one's asked for anything. You're the first person who's asked me for anything. And I realized it didn't matter to the McCain campaign what she thought or what she had done. It, that wasn't why she was there. She was there to stir up emotion. And it was the beginning, really, of the Republican Party saying, eh, it doesn't matter what any what any of these people think. We just have to stoke these feelings. She inspired the Tea Party, you can definitely say. We saw this rise of the Tea Party. She stumped for them. Um, we saw when John McCain was ultimately primaried, he gave in to that same impulse. And you can just really see how she started this whole style of politics that has real consequences. Because now we're talking about Donald Trump saying, uh-oh, what if he acts this way when something really important is happening? If he's not willing to say John McCain was good and fly the flag at half-mast, what does this mean when things are going to really matter? And there's a certain irony there is that John McCain started this and he never apologized. And even over the summer in this documentary, he still stood by her performance. He did say he regretted not picking Joe Lieberman, but he never says, I made a mistake. So as much as we're celebrating John McCain for being this vision of the Republican Party that 
reaches across the aisle that's bigger than maybe the worst instincts of its base. He made it happen. So I wrote a piece this weekend pointing this out, and I got more, I think, tweets at me than actual clicks on the story uh-huh. telling me how terrible I am. And well, it that's just, writing. Yeah, I mean, it is, but I was surprised by how angry people were about it. So anyway, it was an interesting moment for me to just say something that's a sort of separate issue, but to say something that's even perceived as slightly negative about John McCain, uh, that he tapped Sarah Palin to be his vice presidential candidate. And it's also like a deeply weird phenomenon that all of the encomia of John McCain were based in this idea that, oh, his passing, you know, what you were saying earlier, Laura, that his passing represents an era of politicians, of the Republican Party that has passed, and we know that it's passed because of Donald Trump, and this is just a perfect symbol of that. And right. like the, the praise is dependent on the idea that, that John McCain ultimately lost, right? That he lost the battle for right. what the Republican Party should be. And when you point out that actually John McCain did something yeah. that wouldn't have happened without him, that like nobody, it wasn't like Sarah Palin was the inevitable pick for vice president, and that had a pretty direct line to the conflation of celebrity and personal brand and, you know, right-wing culture warrior, that, like, that is seen as a knock on him to actually say that he ended up having an influence, that at least one decision he made helped create the Republican Party that exists today. No one wanted to hear that this weekend (laughs) or probably ever. But, yeah, that there is the separation of the sort of uh, John McCain is metaphor for something America has lost. And then there's the literal conversation about John McCain about, hey, he picked Sarah Palin and, you know, he really missed his moment to be uh, a steward or something bigger uh, in the aftermath of the election. So there's that to me that just is this kind of moment we're in of, yeah, are we talking about John McCain in a sort of abstract way? Or are we talking about the literal John McCain? Because if you get into the literal John McCain and really want to look at his actual legacy, there's a large constituency for not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, maybe we'll take another break and say say farewell to Laura. And Unless Darren you want to gonna sit around talk- and talk about Bing methodology. Mm. All right. I'll see you guys later. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— 
but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Okay, we got for you today Partisanship and Risky Financial Decisions by Masha Krupenkin, Chandra Hill, and David Rothschild. This is an interesting research project, right? So it's like after the 2016 election, there was like a big sharp break in assessments of the economy. It was really driven by partisanship. Democrats went from being moderately optimistic to being quite pessimistic. Republicans went from being very pessimistic to being extremely optimistic. And a question that, you know, has been in my mind, a lot of people look at the economy ever since then is like, is this cheap talk, you know, where, like, people just answer poll questions differently or have people, like, genuinely change their minds, right? right? Like, this is something I've thought about a lot, not just on the economy over the last several months, but, like, looking at how consistent it is that if you poll Republicans or Democrats on something that they can reasonably think back to, okay, is this a partisan issue, a majority of them will fall on the side that their side is expected to hold. Even with some of this really wild conspiracy theory stuff, and it does raise the question of, all right, do we have a problem where people are inhabiting actually different realities? Or do we have a problem where people don't care what they say to pollsters? They don't think that that needs to be an accurate expression of their deepest beliefs. They understand that the function they're serving is to signal, I'm on team red, I'm on team blue, I am going to demonstrate loyalty to my cause. Right. And so what this paper finds, which is interesting, is that they find that, you know, after the election changes, Republicans become much more likely to be searching online to make major purchases, like of a new car or new house. And Democrats become less likely to do that. And then they also find that Republican zip codes actually see more people buying new cars. And so that's evidence that, you know, this is a genuine change in psychology, that it's not just that Republicans say that they are more optimistic about the economy, but they act as if they are more optimistic about the economy and Democrats less so. And, you know, there's there's a bunch of other stuff that has happened that I think is sort of consistent with that, right? Like the stock market boom that relaunched right when Trump won the election, it really seemed like kind of older, wealthier people, like i.e. Republicans, just became more optimistic about the economy. And so they bought a bunch of shares of stock, right? Like like as a real action, not just as a sort of statement to pollsters. That's like kind of me in my armchair. This is this is evidence, which is good. That being said, after having done our sort of replication crisis episode, I'm trying to be a, a little bit more skeptical <laughs> about findings that I just happen to think are cool. And like the way they put this together was by looking at 
Bing searches, which they did, I think, because they were able to link Bing searches with uh, people's stated partisan affiliation via the MSN news website, which is good. I mean, it it works, but that's an eccentric group of people. Like, I, I don't think it's a random sample of the population that has MSN as their homepage um, and uses Bing as their primary search engine. Certainly, uh, I don't. Uh, search like that. And I don't think that there's anything, like, wrong with what the researchers did here exactly. I mean, they're, like, doing the best they can. Um, But I don't know, like, I don't know that this is something I would really take to the bank. Right. I mean, I think that it's kind of worth just walking through the fact that they— The researchers here didn't just assume that Bing searches were going to be representative of the population. There's a bunch of reweighting. They had very specific terms about, like, what's going to predict buying a car, what's going to predict buying a house. Those are all validated measures. Uh, They made sure that they weren't just controlling for different changes in search volume period. And they had a dummy variable about porn searches because porn searches were— They call them, quote-unquote, adult adult searches. searches. Uh, because those are a substantial portion of search traffic, apparently, and, you know, not correlated with kind of consumer confidence in the same way that looking for a car or house is. So they did their best with this data. And the other thing I would flag is that while I did a little bit of looking around on, you know, what the demographics of Bing users are, and, like, we are talking about an extremely small segment of the search market in total. We're talking about, like, 1% of the search market the ways in which it is skewed are maybe skewed toward people who are going to be more likely to buy cars and houses. They're, A, more desktop searches than mobile, which is what you might expect if somebody's, like, sitting down and doing research. They're particularly popular in, like, the 35 to 64 and especially 45 to 64 demographic, people who are more likely to have kids. So a lot of things that generally are going to mean that people are more likely to be engaging in long-term economic activity like buying cars or houses. So I'm not – I do think it's kind of worth thinking about the fact that while it isn't representative of the polity as a whole, it maybe is more representative of the kind of people who are going to be making decisions about whether to buy a car or a house based on their assessment of how the economy is doing more than, say, financial need. And The logic the researchers use in this is that generally people are more likely to engage in these big purchasing decisions, especially buying a house to a lesser extent buying a car, when they have confidence that things aren't going to go to hell in a handbasket. And that, like, for that reason, actually, their key finding here is that Democrats were much more spooked by the Trump election than Republicans were encouraged by it, which is something they predict because kind of loss aversion predicts these kind of decisions. But It does seem that we have a finding here that among a certain kind of people who are likely to use Bing searches, Democrats assumed that the economy was going to be terrible and therefore they shouldn't engage in any major purchasing decisions, despite the fact that that does not – has not materialized, right? Like – and despite the fact, frankly, that the story that Democrats tell about why Donald Trump is unacceptable isn't that the economy is doing badly. It's that – the economy is leaving some people behind, you know, that people aren't aren't gaining and that Donald Trump is unacceptable for a whole host of other reasons. But, like, the story isn't getting told that Donald Trump is going to wipe out the wealth that you and your family have accumulated well, in the same way it would have for Republicans. This is where I – but I actually think this is an interesting difference in the psychology of, like, 
the left-wing ideologue whose view is like people left behind, blah, blah, blah. But like the like norm core Democrat, I think, with this captures well, and I mean I see it with people I know all the time, is like they look at Donald Trump and they look at his behavior and they just cannot believe that he isn't going to wreck the economy. Right. Right. right? Yes. That like that is like the the at some level of like particularly like white college educated liberals who are not necessarily like super political like they just see what Donald Trump is doing they see how Donald Trump behaves they see how he tweets crazy stuff they see how he gets in weird fights with John McCain they see how he doesn't seem to understand any of the policy topics that he is talking about and they in part because they are partisan and in part because they were trained by the experience of the Obama years to believe that macroeconomic management is this incredibly challenging aspect of the presidency that requires a lot of time and attention and knowledge and wisdom. They just like assume that a disaster is coming and that it it cannot be that like this buffoon can just preside over an extended period of peace and prosperity. I think that that is fair. Uh, And this is kind of what this study is assessing very explicitly is like, what is your prospective evaluation of the economy right. and how does that affect your real world, world behavior? But they're focusing on prospective because there are already studies building up a pretty substantial body of knowledge that retrospective views of the economy also change depending on yes. whether your party's in power or not. That like, I just, I, I want to drive home because, you know, to be fo- like, it's not a surprise to anybody listening that, you know, we assume that more people listening to this podcast are left of center than right of center. That, Like, despite the thing that a lot of left of center people tell themselves that they are more attuned to reality than their counterparts, this is a phenomenon that appears to be affecting Democrats in a substantial way. That there is, like, a general problem with information about how the economy is doing and will be doing is filtered through do you like the president or not in a way that appears to be changing real-world decisions. Like, it's actually totally consistent to believe that Donald Trump is a bad president who is going to wreck the economy and that right now the economy is doing okay and that there's a substantial likelihood that the economy will continue to do okay because the president doesn't control the economy, right? Like, you can hold both of those beliefs in your head at the same time. And many Democrats appear to be not doing that. And it's, it's I think you're probably taking the right attitude toward this, that this isn't like the best documented most pervasive phenomenon on the planet because it's based on, you know, New York State DMV data and Bing data. But I'm kind of concerned about this because I definitely did think that a lot of this poll data was what they call expressive reporting, was like telling a pollster what you know your side is supposed to say. And the idea that this is actually trickling down to behavior does, I think, raise some serious questions about A, who is plugged into reality, and B, where does kind of the expressive, oh, I think things are going badly, turn into, I am going to act on those beliefs. Right. And I should also add, I mean, I think if you think about this ideologically rather than partisanly, like it is probably wrong. 
right? If you think about like a normal liberal Democrat's assessment of how the economy works, like Donald Trump is running loose fiscal and loose monetary policy. He's cut taxes, but he's also increased spending at a much higher pace than was happening when Obama was in office. Uh, his Federal Reserve appointments, like I promise you, like I called Obama administration economists before Jay Powell was appointed. They all told me they thought it would be a bad idea to fire Janet Yellen, that she deserved a second term, that she was the most qualified person, but they had no problem with Jay Powell. Like he was fine. Uh, the subsequent appointments he's made, uh, Richard Clarida is, looks like is going to be confirmed. Like he's a totally smart, knowledgeable monetary economist. Like it's fine. I don't endorse Donald Trump being president, but like in this basic question of macroeconomic management, like there's no – it's not that there's no reason to doubt Donald Trump personally, but that like any rigorous understanding of how policy works, there's very little reason to think that like bad tweets can derail the economy. There are things the president could do that would derail the economy, but like he is really not doing those things. And it would be odd to just suddenly in like the fourth year of your term, like totally, totally pivot your view of, you know, like budget deficits or, or who should be the Fed chair. Of course, I mean, nobody knows what like the future will hold, but, you know, just like on the merits, looking at it, like it seems okay. There's a lot of other if bad you're stuff buy a happening. Car, buy a car. Yeah, buy a car. Why not? Right. I mean. I mean, maybe don't. I mean, worry maybe about. Wait, uh, yeah, worry about tariffs. <laughs> maybe a little, but I mean, you know, worry about children being taken away from their parents when they're trying to make asylum claims. Worry about Puerto Ricans not getting hurricane response that they deserve. Worry about the integrity of federal law enforcement being derided. Like, there's there's plenty to worry about, right? It's just, there's no reason, and it's frankly fine if you want to engage in expressive partisanship to try to win elections, but, like, you don't need to, like, Or, frankly, as a matter of social solidarity, right? Like, I think a lot of this, frankly, is... Not every policy is going to affect everyone equally. Policies in aggregate are going to affect some people more than others. There's a certain willingness among liberals in the hashtag resistance to put themselves at the center of things, whether that's by overemphasizing the issues where they would be personally affected or by, you know, doing the weird Andrew Cuomo, I too, and an unauthorized immigrant kind of effective, Uh you know, solidarity. But I personally am super interested in how fear shapes behavior in the political context. I think that this is a pretty interesting indication that a lot of people are just so willing to believe that they are the victims of their own story to kind of invert something Ezra says all the Mm -hmm, time, mm -hmm. uh, that they are actually, you know, assuming that they are going to be in more trouble than they objectively are. Yes. Exactly right. And with that, don't get in trouble. Go to the Weeds Facebook group. Talk to your friends. Reassure them. Tell others to listen to this very reassuring podcast. Uh, it's it's going to be amazing, and you'll really like it. I want to thank our engineer, Griffin Tanner, and our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Thank uh, Lauren McGinn for joining us today. The Weeds will be back on Friday, although without me. So enjoy that episode. Oh, ooh. 